Well, let's have our Bibles open again at Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Sometimes it's hard to tell how people are coping with life. It's hard to tell on the surface at least. Some people outwardly seem to have it all together, but inwardly they're a bag of insecurities. And there are others who are able to come through the most difficult of circumstances uh, and they have tremendous inner calm, inner poise. And if there was a man in all of Babylon who ought to have had security in himself, it surely was King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the the emperor of this vast domain. Uh, He had people all around him who were ready to do whatever he wanted. Anybody who was a threat to Nebuchadnezzar could be liquidated. There was no problem in that. And yet, we see in this chapter that he is plagued with all kinds of fears and insecurities. And on the other hand, there is a young man, Daniel, probably 18 or 19 only at this stage. And he's a captive. Uh, He's away from home. And we see him under threat of execution at this point. And yet, we observe that throughout he displays the most amazing peace. And calm. And we're going to explore this chapter, and we want under God to find out something of the secret of Daniel's calm and poise. Because, like Daniel, as we said at the outset of these studies in Daniel, like Daniel, we are called to sing the Lord's song in a strange land. Our calling as believers is to be consistent in a culture that resists and opposes Christianity in so many ways different ways. Two years then since uh, the events of chapter one, Daniel and his friends have graduated with honors from the Babylonian college. It's notable that we only have four young men mentioned. Presumably uh, there were many others who could have stood like these men did. But only four are mentioned in these early chapters. And it's a reminder to us straight away that It doesn't really matter, does it? How many stand with you on the truth? You and I are called and are accountable to God to stand, regardless of whether there be few or there be many who will stand with us. There were four who stood for God in Babylon. Four that were told of at least. Four who were prominent in their steadfastness for the Lord. Let's look then at uh, this remarkable chapter and look at just the insecurity of the unbeliever and the security of the believer and then the certainty of the triumph of the rock of ages. The insecurity of the unbeliever. Robert Browning, the poet, has a a poem that uh, Sinclair Ferguson used to like to quote in in, uh, Westminster which talked about the The fact that even when we resist God and say that we don't believe in God, there is something within us which is vulnerable to the reminders of God all around us. It's uh, from the poem Bishop Blougram's Apology. And it goes like this. Just when we're safest, there's a sunset touch, a fancy from a flower bell, someone's death, a chorus ending from Euripides, and that's enough. For 50 
hopes and fears as old and new at once as nature's self to rap and knock and enter in our soul the grand perhaps the grand perhaps just perhaps there is a God yes Nebuchadnezzar is hearing the rap rap rapping on his heart in this chapter Despite all the bluster and the outward confidence of the atheist or the one who rejects Jesus as the the only God, there is always, even with powerful men like Nebuchadnezzar, an inner insecurity. And his inner fears took shape in dreams that haunted him. Now, it's not unusual to, to have bad dreams when you're being stressed uh, in the workplace. All of us are, are familiar with that kind of thing too. Uh, sometimes you remember them, sometimes you don't remember them. Uh, but what's going on during the day is often reflected in what we dream of at night. The historians tell us that even at this early stage in Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he was getting opposition. Uh, he had great plans for expanding the empire and there was some opposition to him so he was probably uh, testing out people all the time he was finding out in someone else's words who is one of us yeah and he would have his spies all through the empire seeing where people's real loyalty lay so there was this uh, stress in which he was living and we can understand as well why Uh, He felt so insecure because the things that he was building his life on, the things he was building his life on, are things that are not going to last. Uh, He had wanted to achieve a place in history, and he has done. He wanted to uh, have a a people who would uh, worship him. He wanted to subjugate many nations. He wanted to beautify uh, Babylon so that it would go down uh, uh, in history. And he did that. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon are, are known as one of the wonders of the ancient world. But every one of these things, uh, power, fame, influence, great building projects, they all pass away. They don't last. Uh, they're like desert uh, mirages. Um, closer you uh, get to them. They just vanish like vapor. Nebuchadnezzar has got his own counterpart, I suppose, in terms of being insecure in the the celebrities that uh, fill the magazines, uh, provide journalists with their their fodder, and they are terribly insecure people. They they have their bodyguards, they have their uh, well-paid lawyers ready to, to litigate at the least Uh, threat to their reputation but you don't need to be a celebrity to to have this kind of insecurity you simply need to live in denial that there is a God to whom you are responsible and I think it's very interesting that the point at which Nebuchadnezzar goes uh, flying off into a rage is the point at which his counsellors his magicians speak about uh, wisdom belonging only to to the gods and the gods not living amongst men. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. 
and they do not live among men. Nebuchadnezzar didn't like to be reminded of that. He wanted to be exclusively godlike in his world. So here is an unbeliever who is plagued with insecurity. And in contrast to Nebuchadnezzar, we have a believer who is the very model of calm and poise. Notice, first of all, that God's sovereignty is at work, even in this incident, bringing Daniel to the fore. Because Daniel, although uh, we've seen in chapter 1, how he pardon me, came through the test and was added to the number of Nebuchadnezzar's counsellors, he's still very much in the background. He's a, a young guy, he's a teenager, and so he's overshadowed by the more experienced and the better known counsellors in the uh, palace, so that when the king goes and uh, asks for the, the dream and its interpretation, uh, Daniel is bypassed. He goes to the others. And God is at work here to ensure that at the end of the story, Daniel will be right to the fore. He will be the prominent one. He will be overall. And he does this in a very unusual and perplexing way, uh, in the course of which Daniel's very life is threatened. Daniel shows that he's a man prepared of God for this prominence in a number of ways. First of all, we see Daniel as a man to whom God has given wisdom. Verse 14, we're told that Daniel goes to Arioch to inquire, and he spoke with wisdom and tact. Now consider that. He spoke with wisdom and tact. He could have jumped up and down. He could have had steam you know, coming out of his ears because of the injustice of the situation. The king is going to execute him. And yet he hasn't even had an opportunity to say anything. It's an unreasonable request that the king is making. Uh, and Daniel has been on the very periphery of things. And yet Daniel's life is about to be taken. But he doesn't get mad. He doesn't. Uh, go ballistic at what he hears, he goes and he speaks with wisdom and tact. There's a lesson there for all of us, isn't there? If we walk by the Spirit, let us keep in step by the Spirit. If we're going to do God's work, let's do God's work in God's way. We can seek good ends sometimes by wrong means. We can display wrong attitudes which undermine the work of God, which detract from the glory of God. And we need, like Daniel, to ask that God will give us wisdom, that we might speak words which bless others and which adorn the gospel. He was also a man of prayer. When he heard that the king was demanding the life uh, of all the magicians, unless they could tell the king his dream and interpret it. He went back to his house. He gathered his three other friends with them and they had a time of impassioned, concentrated prayer. Here's the essential difference between Daniel and the other magicians. They had no one to go to when they were in a corner. Daniel had the God who made the heaven and earth. And so when Daniel is at an end of himself, he can turn to God in prayer. He was a man 
who knew that this was the right thing to do, his instinct was to go to God in prayer. Now, when we also make united prayer a priority, and when we see the importance of that, we can look to God for great things. You see, in the intimations, one of the things that we're hoping to do this month is to have another evening of prayer when we we pray that God will, will move in our congregation and will move in our town and Copebridge and the whole community. In some respects, you know, these days are difficult days. Not just in our own fellowship, but in others. We're, we're aware that we're in a spiritual warfare. We see that in making itself manifest in different ways. There is a battle on. And prayer is where we fight the battle. Now, there's a great deal of hope there because when we come to an end of ourselves, when we realize that that we are completely without strength apart from God, and when we cast ourselves at the feet of the Lord and implore him to strengthen us and bless us, we're in the right place. Make a note in your diary then. (laughs) Be there. And we need to do this more often. And we need to to be really serious about about praying and relying upon God. That's That's how Daniel's wisdom manifested itself in his situation. He went and he gathered his friends together. And he said, this is a terrible situation. Let's pray. Let's implore God. And thirdly, he showed himself as a man who worshipped God. When the response was given and the the dream was revealed, his instinctive response again was to worship God. And in particular, he worships God for his wisdom and his power. God's wisdom. The God who is wise had given Daniel wisdom. Daniel worships God for his wisdom. God's wisdom is a wonderful attribute of God's. Uh, He knows the best results to aim for and the best ways of arriving at these results. It's a very practical thing, wisdom. It's not just about facts and knowledge. It's about uh, the practical ways of working out the best ends. And we see the, the most powerful example of that in the cross of Calvary, where God has worked out the best end, the best result, which is the salvation of sinners. And he has done it in the wisest and the best way. In a way that shows his justice because sin is punished. And his grace because he saves without cost. The wisdom of God revealed in the cross. And the power of God is that he is able to achieve his best ends. He is not limited by any lack of resources. He is able to do all his holy will. Daniel acted with wisdom. He prayed with earnestness. He responded to answer prayer with worship. He went on to speak with boldness. He goes to Darius and notice this. He's not afraid to acknowledge God. He goes to Nebuchadnezzar, sorry. He's not afraid to acknowledge God before the king. And he speaks of God knowing full well that it's mention of God that really riled the king On the last occasion. And he tells the king that he can't tell the king his dream. But there is a God in heaven. 
who can do this. That's, that's such a, a, a brave statement, isn't it? There is a God in heaven. When the Babylonians had a panoply of gods and were willing to add another to him, he speaks of the uniqueness of God. There is one God in heaven who can do what you ask. And the king who in the previous occasion had heard the G word and exploded, went off the deep end, reacts very differently on this occasion. Why is that, I wonder? Well, surely one reason, at least, is that he sees in Daniel the integrity of someone who is more concerned what God thinks of him than he is what others think of him. Even if that meant his life. He is accountable above all else to God. And that's clear even to a pagan monarch. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's dream uh, concerns a statue that stands tall and awesome. There have been numerous statues to great leaders, especially in that part of the world. Uh, most recently, the statue to Saddam Hussein, of course, which came tumbling down as well in Babylon. The statue had a head that glistened in the sunshine because it was of gold. Its chest and arms were of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly iron, partly baked clay. And the king is watching, and while the king watches, there's a rock, and it's taken uh, out from the ground, but not by a human hand. And it's thrown against the statue, and it smashes its feet of iron and clay. The statue is demolished, and the iron, and the clay, and the bronze, and the silver, and gold are pulverized. They're ground like dust. And they are scattered like the chaff on a threshing floor. When I was uh, trying to visualize this, I was thinking of the, the scene that we've become familiar with uh, near the house recently. Uh, the demolition job going on on the old St. Ambrose High School. It's been a, quite a, a fascinating thing to watch. These amazing machines, these powerful demolition uh, machines that take everything before them. There's a building standing, concrete, glass, and metal. Go and look at it today, it's, it's flattened. And there are piles of, of ground down concrete. Presumably they're going to use it for the bottoming of, of roads, motorways, and such like. All of, the, all of the different materials have been separated out and graded. And before the might of these great machines, that school has been flattened. All we're left with, piles of dust and leveled ground. What do these things signify? They signify the leveling of the kingdoms of the earth before the omnipotence of the rule of Christ, who is the rock of ages. Uh, in Daniel's context, the head of gold represented the Babylonian empire, the empire of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Uh, the one that would take over from it was the empire of the Medes and the Persians uh, that would replace uh, the Babylonian empire. Then there was the Greek empire, the empire of Alexander the Great. He had an empire that was greater than any other. It extended right as far east. He came, the story goes, he came to the banks of the Indus River and he wept aloud because there were no more worlds to conquer. And then the last empire that's mentioned is the, the empire of iron. The Roman empire. Might of the Romans. Their iron discipline. 
took everything before them. And yet a divided empire eventually. One that would divide. And all of these empires brought down by a rock. And the rock represents the kingdom that God sets up. And that brings all other kingdoms to an end. And it's one that will last forever. Christ the rock is mightier by far than all. Now, a great deal of, of time spent on working out when this kingdom comes in. But notice that uh, we're told in verse 44, it's in the time of these kings that the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the kingdom of God is set up. So God's kingdom is present even in Daniel's own day. And it is revealed in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it goes on and it is growing in our day. And it is leveling the kingdoms of this world before it as it grows. Nothing will stand before the kingdom of our God. Whether it's the communist kingdom. The Soviet empire. Or the kingdom, the empire of red China. Or the empire of Saddam Hussein. Whatever it is, someone that we sung reminds us, the wicked will not stand upon the judgment day, but they will be like the chaff which the wind blows clean away. The testimony to the sovereignty of God, one true king, he rules over all and he demands the loyalty of all. And here's an earthly king and he can only acknowledge the reality of that. Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you were able to reveal this mystery. What a scene. Daniel before this powerful king. And there's a reminder of uh, one of the, the great scenes from Scottish history when Andrew Melville is standing before James VI and he's concerned that the king, this earthly king, is going to usurp the rule of Christ in Scotland and and there are these uh, amazing words when uh, they're alone together. Sir, he says to James, we will always uh, humbly reverence your majesty in public. But since we have this occasion to be with your majesty in private, we must discharge our duty or else be traitors to Christ and you. Therefore, sir, at diverse times I have told you, there are two kingdoms, two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is James, the Lord of the Commonwealth. And there is Christ Jesus, the King of the Church, whose subject James VI is, and whose kingdom he is not a king, nor a lord, nor a head. We will yield to you your place and give you all due obedience. But again, I say, you are not the head of the Church. You cannot give us that eternal life that we seek for, even in this world. And you cannot deprive us of it. Nebuchadnezzar promoted Daniel to the highest place in the land and implemented Daniel's request that his friends should have influence over the province. God's kingdom is growing. Don't we need people like Daniel today uh, in our land where we're so afraid to speak about Christian things? Don't we need ourselves to be like Daniel people who have complete integrity 
People who know God's eye is on me. People who want to please God more than they want to please men. We need this. We don't need marches. We don't need the noise of triumphalism. But we need men and women of prayer. People who have a deep conviction of the gospel. People who are courageous because they're coming from a place of security. We need to ask God, God make me into the kind of man that Daniel was. Give me courage. What we are in private, alone with God, when only his eye is on us, is what really counts. And if we are faithful in one challenge, God will give us the opportunity to be faithful in another challenge. And we will go by steps of obedience from strength to strength. And then finally, as we close, for all of us, for all of us here today, there's this great reminder. We have an appointment that none of us can miss or evade with the rock of ages. And we will find him to be either a rock of refuge or a rock that crushes. You know the way that the hymn writer puts it, rock of ages, cleft for me, split for me. Let me hide myself in me. If we're, if we're trusting in Jesus as Savior, if that's your hope this morning, then when you have that appointment, you'll be hidden in the rock. What a safe place to be. Hidden in the rock. When the storm of judgment breaks, you will be safe. But... We say this earnestly, sincerely. If you're not a Christian, if you're not trusting Jesus, you'll meet him as the rock that crushes, that brings down all before him, that oppose his rule. Ground to pieces on the last day, all who rebel will be like the chaff that wind blows clean away. But the godly, those who are godly in Christ who are hidden in the rock will stand on the judgment day are you ready to meet the rock may you be in Christ on that great day and may God bless to us the preaching of 